All right, Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9. I know it feels like it's been, well, at least for me, it feels like it's been three months. But it was only last Sunday when we finished Jeremiah chapter 8. And today we come to Jeremiah chapter 9. And every time, um, every, for every chapter that we approach, it's, it's always, the struggle is always trying to figure out exactly how to handle each chapter. Obviously, a more traditional way would be like, today we're studying this chapter. You may kind of break it down in somewhat of an outline. Then you take each section of that outline and you formulate basically its own individual sermon if you're doing this more verse by verse. And then you kind of, you use the text more to get to a topic. A lot of verse by verse preaching is really disguised, it's really topical preaching in disguise because you take a section of scripture and then you're like, okay, you, you, you'll give the background, you'll give the scriptural context, but then you use that section really to go to whatever, maybe you'll take the topic from that, that passage, but you really kind of leave the passage and try to say, this is what we're going to talk about. Now, it's not always necessarily wrong, but in the book of Jeremiah, I've been trying to avoid that, one, because of time, because we're trying to finish the entire book before the end of the summer. But two, because of just the complications with the book of Jeremiah, I've tried to take an approach just working through every single verse. But yet if I can find some theme or or topic for that particular chapter, I will try to bring it out. So trying to find the way to approach each chapter is complicated. So I've been looking at Jeremiah chapter 9, looking at Jeremiah chapter 9, and, and, I, and I think I'm going to start this way, all right? I want you to put your thinking caps on. This may not make any sense yet, uh, but instead of reading the chapter and then trying to back out of reading it to get to the topic, I'm going to throw kind of a, a theme out here, an idea out here, and then see if we find it as we get into this chapter. And maybe what we're really going to do is, you know, I listen to a lot of sermons on Jeremiah chapter 9 and realize, you know, how this text is typically handled and once again find myself with a problem. But we'll, we will at least consider these two, or at least consider this idea. When it comes to the church, when it comes to Christianity in general, there are at least two ways in which the church mishandles, wrongly handles, wrongly deals with the concept of sin. When it comes to the church, when it comes to Christians in general, there are two common ways in which the church deals with or handles sin, I believe, in an incorrect way. Now, I could sit here and have you try to guess, but I'll just give you the two different ways. The first way is almost how we define sin. Now, from a from a theoretical standpoint, we typically define sin maybe in a relatively good way, but in a practical sense, we don't abide by that definition. If we really define sin, sin is any lack of conformity to the holy, the holiness of God, and that lack of conformity can be internally, externally. It can be in our thinking, and our speaking, and our desires, and our, in our desi- what we desire, what we feel, and what we do, any lack of conformity to God's holiness, and thought, word, desire, feeling, action, internal, external, 
Now, most Christians, if you were to define sin that way, they would immediately say, amen. The only problem is when it comes to a more practical understanding of sin, we don't really abide by that definition. Well, we don't even want to quantify it. What we want to do is we always try to reduce and practice. We reduce it to very external things. And then we almost create a mortal sin category and a venial sin category, even if we don't use that terminology. And the reason Christians do this is because the underlying teaching is that is throughout. In fact, I I got an email somewhat related to this kind of subject uh, this week uh, while it was gone. And, and, And because this is a constant struggle for Christians. The idea is, here, here I am before I become a Christian. And the concept is, before I become a Christian, I'm sold under sin, and I 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 sin. But when I become a Christian, I now have been set free from sin. I now have power to stop sinning. Now, the, to, to accomplish that theology, what is required? We're going to have to try to define sin in a way that somehow gives you the impression that you're overcoming it, that you have victory over it, that you're now more than a conqueror, that you're now a new creature and old is gone and everything is new. The only way to accomplish that thinking is you've got to reduce sin to what? To merely external and you have to reduce sin to what? A categories, mortal and venial. So then you say, okay, look, I used to, I used to get drunk every Friday night. See, now I don't get drunk every Friday night. Look at me. I'm defeating sin. I'm more than a conqueror. I'm a new creature in Christ. The old is gone. All is new. Well, if, if we define sin as any lack of conformity to the holiness of God, whether internal or external, thought, word, desire, feeling, or action, you may have stopped getting drunk on Friday night, but what are you still doing on Friday night? Well, even if you're not thinking it, you're still in sin. Because what's a lack of conformity to God? We talk about this a million times. It's becoming almost like a broken record. But do we love God with all of our heart, mind, body, and soul? No, we never, we never. It's not normally, we have never accomplished that, not once. Not once. No one has ever accomplished loving God with all their heart, mind, body, and soul. It's literally figuratively impossible The only way to make it impossible would be the eradication of what? The old nature, all right? Do we love our neighbor as ourself? Not in any truly meaningful way. Be ye holy as God is holy. Have we ever accomplished the same level of holiness as God has? No. Therefore, we are always in what? A perpetual state of sin. But we can't, Christians, on, sometimes Christians will acknowledge that, but then we turn right around and then deny it by seemingly to imply, what do, we, what do Christians imply over and over and over? We have power. We have the ability. We can do it. We, there, there's got to be power. We're a new creature. We, the old is gone. All is new. So how do you work that? Many Christians have a hard time reconciling that reality so they, they modify it. And so they'll say, well, I'm not committing that sin anymore. Well, hey, I'm not going to say that's a bad thing that you're not committing that sin. That's a good thing, right? It's a good thing you're not committing that sin. But the reality is you're still doing what? You're still sinning. And so Christians have a hard time really maintaining a consistent 
definition and application of that definition when it comes to sin. Because we, because we have, we want to feel, we, because we are so convinced that Christianity is all about power and being set free from sin in a practical way. That is so much what we teach, right? Because we constantly, Christians constantly teach, look, look at the world out there. We're not like that. We're better than that, right? Because we've been, we are no longer like that. We have been changed. We have been transformed. So this is a constant problem with the church. Now, what is the second thing the church does? There's the first. We don't really maintain a consistent application of the definition of sin. Or the first problem is how we, really how we define sin, because we define sin one way theologically, but we define sin a different way practically. Right? And the second problem is, does anybody know? The second problem is that the church spends all of its time condemning the sins of the world, ignoring our own sins. The church is constantly doing this. I cannot tell you how many sermons I've heard on the book of Jeremiah. And guess what it becomes? It becomes basically an allegory of Christians living in a fallen world and we should be upset and we should be bothered and we should be weeping and we should be horrified and we should be disgusted and we should be bothered by the sins of the nation in which we live. They, they take Jeremiah and make it about the sins of whom? America. America. Yeah, they may outside of the church. Now, what's the problem with taking Jeremiah and doing, making it about the sins of America? It was written to God's people. Okay, Amer- well, America, yeah, is not, not only is it not a theocracy, it was not, obviously, had entered into a covenant relationship with God like Israel was. Israel's God's people, right? They were chosen by God. So to, to, but, but I, I cannot tell you how many sermons were like, hey, you see Jeremiah weeping? Well, are you weeping for the sins of America? Well, this is not about the sins of a pagan nation. This is about the sins of whom? God's covenant people. And it's, but once again, because we, I, I don't understand how we, 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 as a church within America, we have this preoccupation with everyone else's sin instead of seeing it within ourselves. I've got, a, I've got a document right here just to show you. This is just one area. This is one area where research has been done, and they state it this way. The prevalence of sexual abuse in the Protestant Christian church, just as in society, is mind-blowing. Though much more research is needed to truly understood, to understand the magnitude of the problem, the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission put together a sexual abuse advisory group that reached, that reached and wrote a brief report to reveal the scope of the problem and to suggest some basic responses for churches. 
An article from the New York Times cited within the report claims that there are over 260 reports made annually of children being sexually abused by ministers and other workers within the SBC. That's the ones reported. Most sexual abuse is not reported. That many, uh, that every year, 260 reports. They go through, g- grab some other numbers from some different organizations and different reporting. And they have, and all these three companies reported a total of 7,095 claims of sexual abuse at the hands of pastors and other church staff members and other volunteers associated with the church between 1987 and 2007. That's within, the, that's just a Southern Baptist. That does not deal with any other denomination. That doesn't count the Catholic sexual abuse or Assemblies of God or Independent Baptist. That's just Southern Baptist alone. That, does, that doesn't deal with any. So guess what you can find? Sexual abuse in the world, sexual abuse where? In the church. Divorce, there was a new article that divorce rates within Christianity is increasing, and in some cases, divorce inside the church is now passing divorce outside the church. So it doesn't matter what the issue is, you just name the issue. Whatever the issue is, name the sin. If it's outside the church, where is it? Inside the church. Meaning that when we spend all of our time yelling and screaming about what's going on out there, we seem not to be too bothered about what's going on inside here. Right? As churches yell and scream maybe about a drag show in their city, they seem more worried about a drag show in their city than children in the church being sexually, actually sexually abused. What we're worried about getting books taken out of a library, we don't seem to be as concerned about children being sexually abused inside a church. That's the problem. There, there's this weird, like, like, we just see, we, and, and, and guess, you know why I think that's the case? Because it goes back to our struggle with our definition, right? Why do we struggle with defining sin the way we define it? Because we have to believe what? It's like a fundamental belief within the world of Christianity. No, our fu- that we were changed, that we're transformed, that we have this power, that we can do it. But statistic after statistic after statistic after statistic shows what? That we're not. And now the minute I say that, the minute I say that, guess what? I'll get emails. I'll get emails and people will get frustrated and people will get upset and say, but, but, but I, you know, I used to do this and I don't do that anymore. Well, congratulations. I'm, by, by no means is that a bad thing. But the problem is, what are they still ignoring? The rest of the sin. Modifying behavior in one area does not somehow demonstrate. Or pro- Guess what? Are there people of other religions who've stopped committing certain sins. Absolutely. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, atheists who've stopped drinking, stopped uh, stopped drugs, stopped this, stopped that, stopped this, stopped that. Okay, so because there is some level of behavioral modification that can be accomplished 
through all kinds of different means, right? Religious reasons, self-discipline, right? Counseling, tragedy that happens and you decide you're going to change things about your life. Uh, negative outcomes to certain behavior. Like you can go on and on and on. Uh, things can change. But if any change happens as a Christian, we immediately say, because we have power and we have an ability. So this le- that, that mentality then leads us to do what? To focus on everyone else's sins. Because if we focus on our sins, what conclusion could we possibly lead to? We're not as changed as we claim that we are. When you start digging into all these studies, and these now, what's typically the Christian answer to all of these studies? About divorce is increasing in the church, and now possibly now out, it's outpacing divorce outside the church. They're not saved. That's our get-out-of-free-jail card. Every time, they're not saved. They're not saved. They're not saved. That can't be the answer to everything. Agreed? That can't be the answer to everything. That can't be. So we have to deal with this reality. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is, well, even this morning, I was listening to a sermon on Jeremiah chapter 9, and it starts off about how messed up this situation is, how Jeremiah is weeping, and and immediately, guess what it turned into? Are you bothered by the sins of America? And I was just sitting there going, this has nothing to do with America. This has something to do with the sins within what? God's people. That should, cha- that, should, that should lead us to a different interpretation. So go back to Jeremiah chapter 9. And let's at least see if we can get through this in, well, now we have about 30 minutes. So there's, I, I've already, I've taken too long in my introduction, but that's okay. All right. We'll see. All right. We'll see how far we can get. Now, in Jeremiah chapter 9, we have to ask ourselves a question before we start. Is Jeremiah chapter 9, the, is it a part of the continuing sermon that really started in chapter 7? And does the sermon stop in chapter 10, verse 1? That's the first question that we need to at least pose to ourselves. Because if you go back to chapter 7, verse 1, is Jeremiah preaching a sermon? And he's told to go stand where? And he begins to preach, right? Okay, now, first of all, this, this is very important. Where is he being sent to preach? To the temple. Is he being sent to uh, go preach at the local bar, the local government? No, he's been sent to preach to those coming to worship, okay? All right? And that, I, I don't think there's any argument. Do we believe that that sermon continues in chapter 8? Okay. There, do we believe it continues in chapter 9? Okay. And then chapter 10, do you see a, some language that would indicate maybe something different happens? Chapter 10, verse 1, what happens?
Does everybody see it? What happens in chapter 10, verse 1? Hear ye the word which the Lord speaketh unto you, O house of Israel. It sounds like possibly now this, this is a new sermon directed towards the entire nation. Right? Not just to those coming to the te- temple. At least that's how many approach it. And I'm going to at least approach it that way. Because if we approach it that way, immediately then what we realize is, in, this, in fact, what's crazy in the sermon that I listened to, he acknowledged that this was a sermon preached at the temple. Then he turned it into us being bothered by the sins of America. If we were going to apply this, what would be the direct correlation? As Jeremiah was upset about the sins of the people and went to the temple to preach, we should be upset about the sins within the church. And this is what we, how we need to respond to the sins that are where? In the church. That should be the direct correlation. Why do we not? I don't understand why we have such a difficult problem. But let's see what happens in chapter 9. All right? Everyone ready? Chapter 9, verse 1. Now, remember, chapter 8 ended in a pretty negative way, did it not? pretty depressing way the harvest is past right there's no bomb is there no bomb in Gilead is there no physician there why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered I mean this is a it's a very negative right and then look at what he does in chapter 9 verse 1 this is uh, Jeremiah obviously speaking oh that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. All right? What is happening in chapter 9, verse 1? What is happening in chapter 9, verse 1? Yeah, well, it's not just that he's weeping. He seems to be almost looking or asking for what? He seems to have a desire here, almost a a wish here, almost a, a, a request here. Yeah, yeah, we're chapter 9, verse 1. What, what is Jeremiah asking for? Right, he's asking that he could weep more, right? Is he not? Yeah, are, are, do we agree? Yeah, he, he seems to be asking, hey, I wish I could weep even more than I already am. I'm like, oh, that my head were waters and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. He seems to be asking that he could, in fact, this is, this is the verse right here, from, from here, chapter 13 and chapter 14, we derive, he derives the designation of Jeremiah as the weeping prophet. This is where we kind of start getting the idea that he's the weeping prophet. But he wants to be actually weeping more. Now, I wonder why. Why do you think he's asking if, that almost like he could be weeping more? He, in chapter 9, uh, verse 1, according to this translation, if my head were a flowing spring, my eyes a fountain of tears, I would weep day and night over the slain of my dear people. Now, is he, is he wishing that he could weep more? Or is he saying, if... If he was these things, then he could weep more. Is he, is he simply saying like, I, if, I, if I had the ability, I'd be crying all day, but humanly I don't have the capacity. Or is he asking, wishing that he could weep more? How, how are you reading it? It's, I think it's somewhat important. All right. Is he saying that the grief is there? He just doesn't have the... the physically the ability to weep that much or 
is he asking, I wish I could weep that more, almost as if something is stopping him from weeping. Okay. All right. Well, I'm, I'm just asking because if it is it something like, and the only reason I'm just bringing this up is like in my mind is he is he almost like look, I wish I, like he's he's almost wishing he could weep more because he's grown weary of weeping, he's grown tired of weeping, he's grown so frustrated because you know sometimes you can go from weeping to becoming angry and frustrated where you're not weeping anymore. So is he wishing he could still weep? Or is he just saying, look, I've got so much grief. I, I, I wish I had the ability to let it all out, but physically I don't. I, I, you know, I'm just looking to see, is there something possibly changing in him a little bit where I, he's still upset, but maybe there's a little frustration and he's almost still wishing and hoping that he can maintain a more gentle brokenness because there's a, a possibility that he's becoming less broken and more frustrated. Yeah, there doesn't, yeah, the verses before seem to say there's no hope. So I, yeah, I, I, I'm not saying it makes a, a, a lot of difference. It's just the reason I ask this is because the very next verse, right? So verse one, however we understand it, is he, is he wishing he could weep more? Is he something changing in him? And he realizes it and he wants to continue to have that brokenness. However you want to work on chapter nine, verse one, something happens in verse two. He says, oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring men that I might leave my people, go from them, for they be all adulterers and assembly of treacherous men. Now, what is he saying in verse 2? He wants to escape. He wants to get away. So you see why I'm asking the question about one? See, if one indicates, man, Lord, Lord, I wish I could weep more because I'm just getting tired of weeping. I'm getting tired of weeping. And then verse two, he wants to leave. Now, does he want to leave because he's becoming just more disgusted and frustrated and not so much broken? Now, some, I think different commentaries kind of have little different nuances in how they look at this, right? Is he, is he wanting, now some look at this as a positive thing, that Jeremiah is like, see, he's a righteous man, and he is being tormented and disgusted by their sin, so he wants to get away. It's a good thing. Others are like, hey, I am so tired of dealing with these people who will not listen, I want to just leave them. Or I want to get away from them because of how they treat me. Or I want to get away from them because I know what's coming. All of those are very, you see the nuances in all of those? They all paint a very different picture in what's happening here. Like on one hand, I can understand someone, Lord. You know, I I, I wish I had more tears, but I'm just... I'm, I'm done crying. I'm, I'm frustrated. And you know what, Lord? If it was up to me, I'd rather leave these people. I'm just done. I'm tired of dealing with them. 
Now, that's me seeing it in more of a negative way, right? I'm seeing him becoming more jaded and more negative. I'm not saying that's accurate. But I just, I just find it the two verses together. Differ, every commentary has their own little way of approaching it, adding a little nuance to it. I bet you if you put 15 people in a room and read it, you're going to get 25 different little ways of looking at it. Agreed? All right, when he says they be all adulterers, I think we can agree that that's spiritual adultery because that's the adultery that's been primarily focused on, yes? All right. An assembly of treacherous man, that's kind of a, I kind of like the way he, 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 he plays this or words this. It's almost like even when they come together, even when they assemble themselves, remember, he's preaching where we think? At the temple, right? Hey, even when they come together as an assembly, even when they come together in a sense as a congregation, they are what? They're treacherous men. Or how does yours say it? Yeah, they're unfaithful. All right? Okay, now, though, can we agree verse 1 and 2 is clearly the Jeremiah speaking? All right, now... Verse 3. Now, there's more we can say about verse 1 and 2 because, I, I mean, I could try to go from person to person and have you tell me which nuance, which way you would look at it. But we can get the basic idea. There's, there's the, however we want to understand the weeping and however we want to understand the leaving, we know there's basically, I wish I could weep more and I wish I could get out of here. Some people put it, it's the two wishes of Jeremiah. I wish I could weep more and I wish I could get out of here. How you interpret that is up to you. Now, in verse 3, what happens in verse 3? This is where there may be some disagreement. Well, I don't know. There could already be disagreement in 1 and 2. I mean, who am I kidding? There's disagreement on every verse in the Bible. But you get the idea. In verse 3, what happens here? Okay, good. All right, that's what I wanted to see. Verse 1 and 2, Jeremiah is speaking. I think we can clearly identify that. Can we all agree? Verse 3, we believe this is God speaking. And why do we believe God is speaking here? All right. Thus saith the Lord. It's at the end of the verse, right? All right. Uh, In some translations, they have it written this way. This is the Lord's declaration. All right. Does your, uh, does the NIV go the same direction? Verse 3. Yes. Okay, all right. So what is God, in a sense, steps in after Jeremiah seemingly to provide or kind of speaking of these two wishes. I guess that's the best way to describe them. And then God steps in. What does he say? Verse three, they bend their tongues like their bow for lies, but they are not valiant for the truth upon the earth, for they proceed from evil to evil and they know not me, saith the Lord. Okay, yeah, yeah. He, he seems to be, he seems to be like I. Hey, I can understand your. I can understand the situation. But how? What is what is God's kind of diagnosis of this people? What's kind of the the things he lays out as the problem? They're liars. Okay, they they. Okay, they. Well, they they seem to. There there are two major issues. If they lie. Agree? Or three major issues. They lie, they go from sin to sin or evil to evil, and they don't know God. 
all right? They do not acknowledge me. Uh, I think some say they do not know me, depending on the translation. Uh, they, they know me not, saith the Lord. Uh, this translation, they do not take me into account. So however we want to understand this, they don't acknowledge him. Now this is, this is kind of a frightening thought. Here's God's people who are coming to church. God's estimation of those coming to church are three things. What are the three things? They lie. They don't, they don't have any desire for truth. They go from sin to sin. They don't acknowledge me. They don't understand me. They don't know me. There's a lack of knowledge of God, true knowledge of God. Now, it's, it's kind of interesting because in some ways you would be like, well, then why are they going to the temple? Right? Why are they going to the temple? Well, I, I think there's, there's, there's a lot of ways of possibly looking at this. There's a, a, Warren W. Worsby has a kind of an approach to it. We may look at it, but I think it's a good question to ask right now. Like, hey, there are going to church. But the people going to church, using that terminology, the people going to temple lie. They don't care about the truth. They go from evil to evil. They don't seem to acknowledge God or know God in any meaningful way. Oh, yeah, well, the priests have already, yeah, I mean, the prophets, everyone in the whole nation, from the people to the religious leaders. Yeah, but they're still meeting. They're still meeting. You would think, in some ways, you would think that they would just have abandoned worship. Right? But, well, I don't know. See, I, 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 I don't think, to me, they don't see, they don't see themselves as sinning. Like, they're going to church thinking they're okay. That's, that's my feeling. Well, true. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're worshiping all the other idols as well. All right, verse 4. Take ye heed every one of his neighbor, and trust ye not in any brother, for every brother will utterly supplant, and every neighbor will walk with slanders. Now, who's speaking in four? Yeah, I'm going to say God is continuing to speak. Does everyone agree with that? Okay, I, 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 I think, yeah, and then therefore, this is what the Lord of Army says, or according to, depending on your translation, right? Okay, so I'm going to say God is kind of taken over, right? God is, God is the one speaking. All right, so what does God say now in verse 4? I'm going to read from a different translation. Everyone has to be on guard against his friend. Don't trust any brother, for every brother will certainly deceive, and every friend spread slander. Each one betrays his friend. No one tells the truth. They have taught their tongues to speak lies. They wear themselves out doing wrong. You live in a world of deception. In their deception, they refuse to know me. This is the Lord's declaration. Right? I'm going to read it from, a, uh, from the King James. Uh, verse 4, 
Take ye heed every one of his neighbor, and, and trust ye not any brother. For every brother will utterly supplant. Every neighbor will walk with slanderers. They will deceive every one his neighbor. They will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongues to speak lies, and weary themselves to commit iniquity. Thine habitation is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit, they refuse to know me, saith the Lord. I think we're getting a pretty good idea of what's going on here, right? Now, there seems to be one theme that keeps being repeated or emerging over and over on a couple of these verses. What theme seems to be moving to the forefront? Deception lies. The absence of truth. They seem to be so far removed from the truth. They seem to be deceived and are deceiving. They can't seem to see the reality of their own situation. They are blinded to it. And, it, and once again, it, it, I think it serves as a warning. Remember, who has the prophets? Israel. Who has the temple? Israel. Who has the priest? Who has the sacrificial system? They have it all. And are they any better off for it? No. Now, we could ask, we could ask a million questions of why how come, but it's a, it's a frightening situation where the truth is lost, where, where you're so blinded to it. They're so blind to it that, look, he's saying it's so bad that you can't do what? You can't trust anyone. You cannot trust anyone. That is a horrible place to be that you cannot even trust. In other words, hey, you may be going to the temple, but don't do what? Don't trust anyone going there with them, right? They're all slanderers. They will stab you in the back. They don't care about the truth. Nobody cares about the truth. Yeah, they, 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 they tire themselves out sinning. Now, I, I'm more concerned with the truth aspect of this. To me, that's what's jumping, because it's repeated over and over and over. They seem to, I, I mean, I don't even know what the right words are. This is, in a sense, the people of God who are not in, in union. They're not in agreement. They're not people of the truth. They don't possess the truth. They deny the truth. They cannot see the truth. They're walking in deception. And I wonder how many times in church history where Christians are literally on the wrong side of things because we are deceived. I think there's been lots of times in church history where the church is deceived. It would be impossible for me now, if I'm coming up with an illustration, it would be impossible for me now not to once again mention, I mean, I just spent a week, I was in Boston, as everyone knows, and of course I went to Salem, and every time I drive out of Salem, I am so depressed, so discouraged, so frustrated, because it makes me like three seconds away from wanting to become an atheist. Because everything that happened in Salem, I mean, that's the complete failure of Puritanism. I mean, Puritans were there to make a city on the hill. This is, this is what a, a, a city, this is what a, an area looks like when we establish the word of God as the standard, when we are going to commit ourselves to God's glory. This is what it will look like. This is Salem, the city on the hill. And it turned into false accusations, slander, 
and people being murdered who were innocent. Two dogs were killed as well for being witches. All right, all right, insanity. Insanity, and like, they believed that they, like, and, and, and the religious leaders at the time fell for it. They were deceived by teenage girls who made it all up. You get great you, you Puritan writers like Cotton Mather who wrote, what, 400 books or whatever it is? These theologians who bought into it. They used something known as spectral evidence. Anybody know what spectral evidence is? I did an hour-long uh, podcast on this. Spectral, do what? Okay, spectral evidence, it's the most insane thing. Like wherever we went in Salem, they kept talking about the use of spectral evidence. And you're like, and and of course the tour guides and everybody else is like, these people were out of their minds. And and part of me is like, well, yeah, no, that's Christians for you. That's what we do, right? Spectral evidence, if you don't know what it is, a spectral, uh, when we talk of a specter or something, a spectral, you're referring to like a ghost. You're like referring to like a spirit. So the way it would work is, Robert over here would be, you know, sitting at home last night. All of a sudden, he's like, oh, you know, I'm being tormented. Someone is attacking me. Someone is pinching me. He would fall into a stupor or a fit and say, it, 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 it's, it's Sarah. Sarah. Sarah is tormenting me. Now, you make the accusation. You could go to your house, and, and Stephen could be like, she was right here. She was, she was right here. She never went to Robert's house. She, she was right here. Doesn't matter because it was her. It was her specter. It was her ghost tormenting him. And so you would make the accusation, and guess what they would do? Come and arrest her. Now, how how does she defend that? I wasn't there. (laughs) But your your spirit was there. Now, because this went from a theological belief that the only way... Her specter could show up in his house is because she gave the devil permission. But how could she prove that she didn't give the devil permission? Well, over 200 were arrested. Um, I mean, because they just started accusing everyone. Uh, a total of 19, 19 I think, were, uh, were hung. One was crushed to death, and all in a very short span of time. Um, and, and it would have continued until the, gov- the, the, governor, the governor's wife in Boston, she was accused of being a witch, and then the governor was like, okay, this is enough. This is, stop it. This is crazy. This is, we're not going to have any more of this, okay? Because now his wife was accused. Up till then, he didn't care. Who cares what the people in Salem are doing? They're all crazy anyway. I don't care. But once his wife got accused, and he was like, we're going to stop this. No more. No more. But they, they, this idea of the use of spectral evidence, it's, it's insane. But who was doing it? The religious. The people who went to church. The people who knew the catechism. The people who knew scripture. The people who could recite scripture. The, the religious leaders. You can read some of the sermons from that time where... Well, they, they're, they're the ones who claimed, oh, it's happening to me. And, and they were like, well, how did, who's doing this? Oh, it's, it's our slave. She's doing it. She's, she's the one tormenting us. And then the slave was like, she didn't know how to play the game. She, and, and, and in some ways, the slave was the smartest one of everyone 
because she basically was like, okay, yeah. I mean, I didn't mean to do it, but, you know, Satan basically made me do it. And he said if, if I didn't sign my name in his book, basically he was going to kill me. So she would then started just going with the story, but she was smart because she would be like, well, there were names in the book, right? And, but, but I can't see it right now. I can't see it right now. So then, so the, then she would give a little bit more information. So, yeah, she, she was smart, right? Because, because I kept her alive because you needed her to get all the names of the people. Like, she was a genius. Like, she was smart. Her stories were insane. And, I mean, there, I mean I'm, I'm paraphrasing and, and summarizing everything that happened in Salem. But the, the key is that that was, in a sense, God's people. And they were crazy. Deception. They were all being deceived and deceiving. They were stabbing each other in the back. Children would blame, would accuse their parents of being a witch. Husband would accuse his wife of being a witch. And if you didn't like someone in the church, accuse them of being a witch. If you wanted their land, oh man, the whole thing was just a mess. The whole thing. I mean, and every time I go there, it's like, I, I love the place. But I'm always so just like, because, you know, on, it's, it's always, it's, it's like two different worlds. You go to Bible college or seminary, or you're reading anything about church history, you always hear the Puritans, the Puritans. They were godly. They were theologians. We need to get back to the Puritan way of thinking. Right? The Puritans were always lifted up as this great example. Yes? And by no means would I say we shouldn't read the Puritans. By no means am I saying we should ignore the Puritans. No way am I saying that every mistake they made, all the good they did should be forgotten because of what happened in Salem. But we, at the same time, you can't ignore what happened there. Because it was the failure of Puritanism. And then not only that, they came here because of what? Religious persecution. And then immediately, what did they establish? <laughs> they immediately like, hey, if you're this you got to go. If you come back, I think the Quakers, if, you li- if you're here, you've got to leave, and if you come back, we'll kill you. Right? They started persecuted. They outlawed Christmas. Christmas couldn't be allowed. They, 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 they just gave the same. And like, how could they not see they were doing the same thing? They tried to escape. That's seemingly to be what? Deceived. So when I read about how bad this situation was, in Judah, right, it reminds me of, well, you know, we've seen this kind of thing play itself out in history before. And it still does. How often are Christians on the wrong side of things? How often are Christians deceived? So it really, we're going to have to end with this because we're nowhere we're going to get done with this chapter, but that's okay. So let's think of it this way. There are two ways in which I think the church mishandles sin. The first way is we define it one way, theoretically, in a good way, but practically we don't really operate according to that definition. Why? Because we believe that we have to somehow define sin differently to prove that somehow we have power and we are overcomers and when in reality we're not. The second problem is, what's the second way we mishandle sin? We seem to be, we always focus on the world and not on ourselves, right? Okay, but then there's, a, there's really a third issue to end this morning with, and it's this. 
How deceived, how wrong, how confused can Christians be? Because there's, on one hand, we seem to have the idea, once again, that if we're Christians, that the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. That our eyes have been opened. We're no longer in darkness. We are in light. Once again, we brag about that, right? But how, how much deception can we, by how wrong can we be? How deceived can the people of God be? It's a very important question. To me, everyone in Salem was deceived. Now, there was a few people who tried to say, this is crazy. These girls, one man said, what these girls need is to be whipped. That's what they need. And then he was accused of a witch and was killed. So, yeah, that didn't go so well, right? (laughs) Didn't go so well, right? Because some people were like, Hey, could y'all wake up and realize the girls are playing us here? Okay, can someone realize this? But no, 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 no. That could not happen. And then the other people who kind of realized we got to stop being deceived by these girls lived outside of Salem, maybe towards Boston. Because if you were there, basically then they were just going to do what? All of a sudden fall down, start flopping around going, his specter is attacking me, right? And then, and then guess what? Arrest him. And then you're like, isn't that insane? Now, it would be one thing for teenagers to do something crazy like that. But the, relig- the, the religious leaders, those who preach the word, couldn't go, hey, guys, let's slow this down here. What are we doing? Because we need to speak the truth, pursue the truth. We don't want to bear false witness. You know what I'm saying? I mean, even, even the Bible seems to argue that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, something is conf- confirmed, right? Well, w- when your witness is a teenage girl and her evidence is a ghost, <laughs> a spirit of someone, I think you should stop and go, I think maybe we're losing the plot here. But they didn't. So would you not say that they were deceived? So then that's a very important question. How deceived can we be? I think that's a very, I think that's a, 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 a question to really struggle with, right? Because we seem to, once again, we seem to, we always create an image that Christians basically are what? We sin less than are those horrible people in the world. And we are less deceived than those horrible, horrible people in the world. And therefore, we spend our time pointing our finger and doing what? Condemning them while excusing or or ignoring ourselves. I think it's something to be considered when reading the book of Jeremiah. All right, we'll stop right there. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, as the people of Judah were in a horrible spiritual state, Lord, I pray that we would look to our own selves, look to the church, look to our own lives as believers and see our own sin, our own deception, and be broken over that. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...